I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Newsroom Robots, the podcast where we explore the intersection of artificial intelligence and the news industry. I'm Nikita Roy, data scientist, media entrepreneur, and one of the many founders currently building their ventures at the Harvard Innovation Labs. On the Newsroom Robots, I'm excited to bring you insightful conversations with industry experts about how AI is impacting the way we do journalism. Joining me today is Jeff Jarvis. He's been the director of the Tau Knight Center for Entrepreneurial Journalism and a professor at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at the City University of New York. He's authored six books, with his latest being The Gutenberg Parenthesis, The Age of Print and Its Lessons for the Age of the Internet. Jeff also co-hosts the podcast This Week in Google and AI Inside. Prior to his academic career, Jeff was the president of Advance.net, overseeing portfolio companies like Condé Nast and Advanced Local. He's also the creator and founding editor of Entertainment Weekly. Recently, he testified before the U.S. Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Privacy, Technology and Law regarding AI and the future of journalism. This week, we're kicking off a two-part episode with Jeff. In part one, we'll delve into the crucial questions surrounding copyright and generative AI, which is, should AI companies be allowed to use the news industry's copyrighted works to train their models? We'll explore the complexities of this issue and discuss the recent lawsuit where the New York Times has sued OpenAI and Microsoft, alleging that AI companies are illegally using its copyrighted content to train their models and then profiting off of it. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to Newsroom Robots. Been looking forward to this. Hi, Nikita. Thank you. I've been looking forward to it, too. Jeff, I have been very interested, first of all, by your book, The Gutenberg Parenthesis, that I want to touch upon later, but also 
really about your insights on AI, which I think has been very different from what I've been hearing from the news industry. You're a veteran journalist and an educator, and you recently testified about AI and the future of journalism for the U.S. Senate's Judiciary Subcommittee. And so what I found very interesting over there was you spoke about how we have to reimagine copyright in this age of change. And it all needs to start with that discussion of a fair use of generative AI being a fair and transformative use. And I think that's been the big question for us as the news industry right now on how is generative AI using our content, using the news, using work that's produced by journalists. And the New York Times lawsuit, I think, has really put that in forefront right now on top of everyone's minds. And is it even legal for news content to be used as training data for generative AI models? I think the New York Times lawsuit will be a really great way for understanding what we're talking about when we're talking about generative AI and news. And I really want to break down those key components that they really talk about in the New York Times lawsuit. One of the first things that they say is talking about should large language models be allowed to train on news and copyrighted content? Should they be allowed to understand knowledge the same way as humans are doing? And that's the question I think is the big one that's on top of people's minds. So where are you in terms of understanding this? What are your thoughts on it? So thanks for having me. And when I testified before the Senate, my role there was just to be kind of the beard for the conversation, because what you had in the room were a bunch of lobbyists and legislators who were writing laws together. And they couldn't call on a hearing unless they had somebody who might disagree a little bit. And that was me, and they didn't have to call on me, and they didn't much. But I get to submit testimony, and I got to answer a few questions. And my view is different from the industry's. The industry is going hard right now saying, AI must pay for and license everything it uses for any reason. Roger Lynch, who's the CEO of Connie Nest, was uh, testifying next to me, and he drew the distinction between what he called training and output. You've told me that it's also called training or query. That is to say, content that's used to just train the program how to speak and how to understand what we're saying. Though it doesn't understand anything, but it seems to comprehend what we're saying in our questions. You look at tons of data and you see that the word white is often associated with the word house in these circumstances, so then it has the ability to make those connections. That's the training. The query or output is different insofar as I ask it a question, does it come back to me and give me content that is in fact from a publication? And it is then serving that to me. And so I make a separation between those two. Lynch did not. Lynch from Connie Nast, in every reference, said training and output, and they have to license and pay for everything for both because he recognized that there is some separation. So the separation to me amounts to, let's start with the training part, which I think is more difficult to get our heads around because it's new, it's different. But then again, it's not. And one thing I said before the committee was that I looked back at copyright law and the New York Times in its suit against OpenAPI said that news organizations have been protected by copyright from the beginning, which is simply not true. Newspapers were not included in copyright in, in its original formulation in 1710 in England. It was not included in the U.S. copyright at first. Only maps, books, and charts were. Copyright was not included, uh, that was in 1790. Copyright was not included until 1909 for newspapers, right? So newspapers were not included. Secondly, I think it's relevant to say that the U.S. Postal Act of 1792 enabled newspapers to send each other copies of their papers for free 
And this was an intentional way to set up a network for news and with it, a nation. And in fact, I love this part, newspapers employed people called scissors editors, their actual job title, where they would cut things out of others' newspapers and then get them typeset and print them. And they, they wanted credit, but it was for free. So that's our precedent going back. And now here comes the New York Times, here comes the NMA, the Association for Newspapers and Magazines, the NAB, the Association of Broadcast, and Conde Nast, all saying, pay us. Well, what I said in the hearing, and I did it in a metaphorical shorthand way, which got me in some trouble elsewhere, was to pose the question, does the machine have the same right to read and learn and use information as a journalist? Because every journalist on earth reads other journalists' work and gets information from sources and does not pay them, learns from it and uses it and repurposes it in their journalism. And we all say, that's fine, because that's how journalism must be accomplished. Otherwise, it simply wouldn't, wouldn't be workable. Well, I said the machine should learn. Some people came after me and said, you're anthropomorphizing. The machine has no rights. Uh, you know, robots don't have rights. I'm not trying to say that. What I'm trying to say is, does the company making the machine or the user of the machine or the program, whether that's Google or OpenAI, uh, have the same rights as WCBS radio or Clear Channel radio to rip and read stories out of the newspaper and repurpose them? I didn't say it that way because once you mention the word Google, then people get their hackles up and they say, oh, Silicon Valley evil. And I'm not trying to deal at that level. I'm trying to deal at the level of principle and precedent. And I'm upset about my fellow journalists and news organizations. Number one, that they are lobbying the politicians they should be independent of. And they shouldn't be in a position to seek favors and be indebted to politicians. That's one. Two is that they're not recognizing the precedent that they themselves have set by reading and learning from each other and using each other's information. Three, they're thus, with the legislators, with the Senate, trying to shrink fair use to the extent that copyright won't exist. Now, I was accused later on in the hearing of expanding fair use so much the copyright wouldn't exist. And so we can argue about this all day and probably will. Larry Lessig of Harvard famously said that fair use is the right to hire a lawyer. It's not set in stone. We're going to have arguments about this in court. We're going to see where this goes. But I think that the news organizations are being quite short-sighted, as they have been in the past. It's also worth mentioning that when radio came along, newspapers tried to keep them out of the news business. They made them sign an agreement that said that they would do no news or that they would do only news only twice a day and that news would have to come from the wire services that they had to pay for. They wouldn't be allowed to have advertising. They weren't allowed to talk about any news event until 12 hours afterwards. They tried to keep journalists out of congressional press galleries. That was the reception of newspapers to radio and to TV and now to the internet and then to AI. Newspapers are very inhospitable beasts, and they are right now trying to use legislatures for protectionism. On the one hand, that means disadvantaging their competitors. No, you can't use our content. On the other hand, it means trying to get a potted gold out of those competitors. So as we've seen in C18 in Canada with social media, the news organizations tried to get money out of Google and Facebook. Facebook just dropped news entirely. And so now I think we're going to see the same thing happen with AI. And the problem in the end of the day is, number one, we're going to end up with worse AI and people are going to be using AI for better and worse. And two, 
news organizations are setting a precedent that I think is very dangerous. And it seems like from the examples you've given and history is repeating itself in a way, the news industry is repeating what we've done to pass technological changes the same way to AI right now. And I think what's happening over here is also really different compared to how the model is working. It's changing everything, changing the whole world, but also how the model is working in relation to the news data. There's the training, as you said, and then there's the querying. There are two separate things. And we are benefiting quite a lot from that training when a large language model like GPT-4 is trained and news organizations are using it. We are benefiting a lot from it. And one thing was also what I was thinking about was in the New York Times lawsuit, they bring about multiple different exhibits, right? They had one exhibit where GPT was able to verbatim produce an entire article from memory by telling them an example where they were being paywalled out of a a New York Times article. And as a result, the model, which has the capability, which is actually a flaw of it, has the capability to memorize some of the content. And so it was spitting that out. That was one component of where it was showing the output was matching the input. And then the other part was the things like Microsoft Copilot, where you're able to chat with it and ask it specific news from New York Times. And that's where the querying is going. They're going to the New York Times website and then producing that content, right? So there were two separate things I would say that this lawsuit focuses on and that copyright issues focusing on the training and the ability to go and query from a particular website. So in those two different constituents, one seems to be an error of the model, which is memorization. The other one is going and bringing information and producing that as part of their generative AI product like Microsoft Copilot. So in those two distinctions, where do you see, so you, from your experience, it seems like you think that the training part, we get the advantage from and we should not be getting paid for being trained on it. But then do you see for that retrieval, the part where they go and retrieve from the news website and then they're producing content based on that, should they be getting paid for that? Should the news industry be getting paid for that? I think that's the right distinction, unlike what Condé Nast did of putting them together. I think the training is fair use because it is transformative. Now, in the case of the New York Times examples from their lawsuit, they went through a lot of hoops to get the machine to repeat something. They were, they gave them lots of paragraphs of an article, and kind of the only words left for it to predict were those that were left, or from, from a Guy Fieri interview where a particularly nasty paragraph was quoted all over media including lots of free media, because we all rewrite each other in our business. And so it was easy for the machine to put those words together. So that's that was a parlor trick on a parlor trick, and I don't think it's the real issue here. There is, I think, a proper discussion to be had about licensing content for queries and output. And that's an opportunity for the news business. Rather than fighting at this point, as we are out of our, out of our field, we should, I think, be looking for ways to make it possible for... AI companies to query and serve information from us and licensed for that purpose. So Amy Reinhart, who we both know from the Associated Press, who's also in the executive program that I helped start at CUNY, her project for her executive program is to look at a news LLM. The other thing that I've been thinking about is whether or not we in the news industry should be creating an API to news. It's the way technology people think. Why wouldn't we create an API with keys that we can give out under contracts with limitations for news and say, if your uh, model or your application wants to call upon a database of news, here, here's how you can do it. Here's what the, what the conditions are. 
Here's where the payment comes in, and we can negotiate that then. And in that case, then the model would be free to come back to a query and say, well, yes, in answer to your question, I'll give you the background, but here's what the New York Times says. Boom, 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 boom. So I think that's a fair discussion to have. Another discussion to have is about the acquisition of the data in either case. So in the case of Common Crawl, which is an open and free protocol that goes and archives the textual web, it's been mainly for researchers. But now, obviously, given what it's doing, the model companies love it because it gives them a huge amount of data. That's the open and free web, and that should be just their right to do, and the open AI should be able to read it, and I don't see any issues there whatsoever. The New York Times has demanded of Common Crawl that they take down their content, even that archival content that was free. Well, I think that's a moral issue of the New York Times trying to deprecate the value of our web and a picture of it, but hey, Common Crawl respects that. They can do that. Okay. Books 3, on the other hand, is different and interesting because obviously Books 3, I mean, look at it this way. OpenAI, for the cost of one subscription to the New York Times, I think is fully in its right to read the New York Times. I think that takes away the issues. We read it. We learned from it. We used it. It was transformative. Bye. However, Books 3 is obviously different because the creators of that database, which again was done for scholarship, was incredibly valuable for scholarship. But once large language models came along, uh, had different set of value, and they didn't buy every copy of those books. I know that. So there's an issue of acquisition there. Now, by the way, when The Atlantic came out with a list of the books included in Books 3, I, of course, egotistically went and looked up my first books to see if they were there, and they were. And if they hadn't been, I would have been really miffed and hurt. I would have felt really unimportant because I don't write just to make money. I write to get ideas out there. And that's why I want things to be out there. And I think it's valuable for society to be out there. There's a higher order of what we should be talking about than just the New York Times saying, yeah, 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 pay us. Let me say one more thing. This I write about in the Gutenberg parenthesis. I think that we in journalism have gotten too obsessive about this idea of content. And we think that our value is entirely resident in this thing we make called content. Well, the biggest threat that AI brings to our business is that it commodifies content. Now comes a machine that can make no end of content. And making content ain't so special. Writing isn't so special. Reporting is, trust is, authority is, service is. That's where the value of journalism should be resident, not in this idea that we make this thing called content that you have to pay for whether you're a reader or a machine. Yeah, exactly. And you're talking about that value of content, the value of data. Sam Altman actually just this week at Davos in the World Economic Forum spoke about how we actually don't need to train on the New York Times data and was talking about how these the change that he's expecting in these models is that they would be able to take smaller amounts of higher quality data and be able to learn from it the way a human's able to take, as he was saying, like one or two biology textbooks and understand high school biology instead of training on 2000 textbooks of biology. So then it comes into where does the value of journalism fall, which is a huge existential a crisis when it's starting to adopt and create content. And could you talk more about that? Where do you see the value of something like a news API falling in working with the generative AI models? As I've heard it expressed, right, there's two problems, two major problems with LLMs right now. The first is what I hate when they call it hallucination, <laughs> but the fact that it has no sense of fact. It doesn't lie. It doesn't know what truth is. And the second is currency. The models only go up to a certain date. So I see a value in news, and not just news, in Wikipedia, in, in other sources, in saying, we're going to make it easy for you that when the model hits something where it knows 
it's been trained to know what it doesn't know. That's going to be hard. I'm not sure how possible it is, but but it hits a point where it doesn't have a citation, let's say. And two, that it simply it's out of date. That it could then query through an API a, a huge database of news and return those answers. Now, what the business model is then? Well, that's business negotiation. I have a friend right now. I won't say too much about what he's doing because he just started it. But he sees creating a company around this and is starting to do that. And so I think that there are opportunities for us to just think more positively about this rather than going to Congress and courts and thinking that if we win, we'll get a bucket of money. That's not a strategy for the future. AI is going to be here. People are going to use it for querying. It's not going to work well in many cases. Just ask certain lawyers who've tried to use it to get case citations. So we could be helpful and we could negotiate in good faith together. Now, granted, the model makers went off and just grabbed all kinds of data like books three. And yes, they were a little cavalier with copyright, but I would argue again, and their acquisition might not have been so cool, but it was fair use. It was decent training. And they came up with this technology that's amazing all of us. So let's start from there and figure out what we can do together. I do think that OpenAI probably made a tactical error in negotiating with Springer and the Associated Press because it sets a precedent before the principles are set. It's trying to say, well, don't sue us. Here it is. Or in the case of the New York Times, okay, fine. We won't use you. We're going to use everything else. Let me ask you a question about Ken Nikita because I'm not a data person like you. I just blather about this stuff. Is what I hear a lot of folks, I went to a World Economic Forum event, not in Davos, but in San Francisco on AI governance. And what I heard a lot there was talk about synthetic data. If we don't have the database, if we don't have the mechanism that exists out there, can we kind of make up the data? And I'm not sure how that operates in terms of credibility if you create synthetic data. Is that anything that you've... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. That yet? So synthetic data, I think, is still something that people are researching quite a bit on. But the core issue, which I think, and I think Matt, Carolyn, on my first episode that I ever had, was talking about this future where we might be having a, a place where an industry, maybe, and even a whole new business opportunity for people to find, verify, trained information that is creating information specifically for these models to train on. Because we've seen from research that's happening right now, the models are 
ingesting AI content. And that kind of makes them go crazy a bit and spit out things and the model doesn't work as well. So having human quality data because of the way in which humans write, that randomness in which people write is a huge emphasis right now where people need that quality training data. And there is actually a lot of data that's still available out there. Just think about all of the countries that are still not as digitized. One of the things we had spoken about was like in the African continent, a lot of the governments over there, everything that is out there and is digital is actually written from a Western perspective. Now, what if we go and invest heavily on making transforming things from print to digital that's there. Synthetic data, I think there's still a lot of research to get to that point. But even before we get to that point, there's still so much of data that's untapped that even they were talking about in Davos this week about you're talking about all kinds of like health data, biometrics data. There's just so much of data in the world that we still haven't processed. And the potential, I think, is really big um, over there. So so when we're talking about copyright, how do we copyright all of the world's data? Yeah, and you can't, it's just, that makes it a clearer case, I think. If it is just data, then you can't own information. You can only own the treatment of it, right? And so I think that that's one way to look at this. I mean, I argue that the news stories are just another form of data visualization. You can make a chart, you can make a box, you can make a story. The thing that interests me about the, of the synthetic data is that, or just models trained on model output. My friend Matthew Kirschenbaum, who's a professor at, of, of English at the University of Maryland, wrote a piece for The Atlantic, a warning of a text apocalypse, that when models spew out content and train on that content, we end up in the end with a gray goo. You know, and one thing I think about all of this that we, we pass over is that the models are reflecting back to us the publishing of the privileged, to your point about about the rest of the world, and even within the world, those who didn't publish, those who didn't have things there. All it's playing back to us is our cliches and our biases and our misapprehensions about the world as it is. And so just as Wikipedia works very hard to get more diverse set of Wikipedians to open up the perspectives there, so I think, I think your point about synthetic is really interesting. Will we need to intentionally compensate for what is missing in training sets? I think that's where we need to be heading into. And that's also one of the reasons when you're talking about the mirror of the world is what these large language models are doing. That's also one of the reasons I don't know whether news large language, like a news LLM is really the solution sometimes, because if you're just going to be training on news data, how much of the news so far, let's say, has really been representative of the world? And I mean, we have now all of these conversations over about DEI and diversity and having, making sure that we're including more diverse perspectives in our voices and our stories, but how much of that in the past training data has been? So is a news LLM a solution? I absolutely agree. I think that two things. One is, I don't know when it was, probably when I started teaching, when I used the phrase rebuilding trust in news, and I think it was one of my students who, who said, whoa, there's a lot of people who never trusted news. And I think that's absolutely true, and we've got to consider that. The other part of this that interests me there are other uses for this technology that I find interesting. One is that if I had this concordance of all the available text in the world, rather than having it spit out more of the same, what interests me is to be able to query that data to find our cliches and our biases and our misapprehensions and our connections. That's a treasure trove of information about us. And when I say us, it doesn't mean everybody. I mean, again, those who had the privilege to publish and it could also tell us what's missing. I also had an interesting discussion in our executive program 
well, I'm retiring from CUNY, so I guess I'll say their executive program. I've argued that LLMs might extend literacy to the extent that they enable people who are intimidated by writing or illustrating to write or illustrate their own stories. And I talked to the Marshall Project about this with much of their audience and many of their sources are technically illiterate. And so if we define literacy as reading, that's one issue. If we define literacy as speaking, that's another issue. And being able to speak to the machine, being able to hear back, being able to have the machine give you back the things that you want to say, I think is quite intriguing. But two of my students, one who has a different serving people who are imprisoned, another First Nations in Canada, said, whoa, Jarvis, then you're making everybody code switch to the white hegemony of language because it's going to mimic that which came from those who had the privilege to publish. And they were absolutely right. So these raise all kinds of fascinating issues around that mirror we've discussed. It's a cracked mirror. It's a warped mirror. It's an inadequate mirror. It's a fascinating mirror. It's a mirror we can play with and do things with, but we must recognize its limitations. Exactly. And I think, you know, just wrapping up on this idea of the copyright, it seems like a lot of people are talking, Sam was saying that we are focusing on the wrong issue. I have been talking to a lot of lawyers about the copyright issue, and they seem to say it's fair use and transformative use for generative AI models using it. One thing that I found very interesting recently, and I want to bring up this point and get your thoughts, was Rebecca Tushnet, who is a First Amendment lawyer here at Harvard Law School, in an interview with the Harvard Gazette, said that if we would be the risk of regulating and creating laws around this right now is that we don't know how they are going to be changing the world, basically. And if if we go down and write laws for what we expected to do today, we would completely miss this path of technological development, she says. And one of the main things she says about is if you care about the potential for lost jobs and that generative AI models would bring about, we need to look to labor laws and unfair competition laws and not copyright. Copyright's not going to help you with that. So I wanted to get your perspective on that. Do you think we need to be talking more about the labor laws, the unfair competition laws? Because the truth is jobs are going to be lost. Jobs are going to change because of this and journalism will change. So so where do we then focus on this copyright if copyright is not what we're focusing on? So the more I dig into copyright, the more fascinated I become with breaking through the myth of the romantic author as the protected entity in copyright. That copyright is here to protect creation, right? That's what we always hear. Well, no, at the very beginning of 1710, it was booksellers and publishers who demanded a system that would create a marketplace for creativity as a tradable asset. So the author could sell it. The author was protected in the sense that they could sell it in the first place, but then it was no longer theirs. And the publishers wanted the right to continue to sell it and resell it and resell it. And so it was about creating a marketplace for that. If we go on later in copyright, again, news was excluded. And Will Slaughter, who's the, who's the author of a very good book called Who Owns the News, I, I had a conversation with him the other day. And he said that when the Berne Convention in Copyright, the International Convention in Copyright came out, there was much explicit talk about excluding news still then, because it was a benefit to society to have us share news. And then as I read further, looking at, as we came up to 1909 in the U.S., so U.S. publishers took great advantage of the fact that they were not part of international copyright. So in the U.S., in the 19th century, publishers could steal, in our view, but it wasn't stealing, it wasn't illegal, could take any book from anywhere else in the world and reprint it and pay no one. And in the end, even publishers started to agree to copyright, but the reason they did was not because they wanted to protect any creators, it was because they feared that they'd have a lot of new competitors who could get all kinds of cheap junk 
and they wanted to raise the cost for them, regulatory capture. Finally, there was a view in copyright that who is the real creator was presumed to be the writer, right? Well, then came copyright doctrine around work for hire. And the argument was that if an editor, a signing editor, tells you to go out and do this and this and this and this, and you come back and do it, well, the editor is a creator as well. So thus the company could own the copyright. And this notion of extending credit. So I did a project for the World Economic Forum uh, over some years ago in examining, they didn't call it re-examining copyright, I did, but they were examining how to support creativity. So I came up with this concept that I call credit right that argues that there is a string of contributions to creativity. If somebody, you see somebody out there who does something interesting and you write a poem about it, then I come along and I write song lyrics about it. Somebody else comes along and writes music for that. And somebody else comes along and performs that. And somebody else comes along and remixes it. And somebody else comes along and puts it in a movie. And somebody else along the way promotes it. Every one of those actors along that way deserves some credit for contributing to the creative product in the end. And what if we had means to record that credit? And I'm not saying that everybody gets paid. Maybe they just want credit. Maybe they just want to know about it. Maybe they want fame. Maybe we want to know what the provenance is and who's responsible for it. We've got to rethink this romantic idea that there's just an author at the end of this. And to go to your point about labor, you know, one of the interesting things that I learned in, in researching all this for the Gutenberg parenthesis is that our sense of authorship, and this is something that Foucault talks about, and others didn't really come until the point at which authors were held liable for their words. In the early days of print, it was the printer who would get beheaded or behanded for what they printed. Then it was the publisher and the bookseller who would be responsible. This is one of the reasons that newspapers didn't exist so much in the beginning because you had to have a regular name on it to subscribe to it regularly. And if you did, we could find out who printed it. So news books that came out just once with fake names and other names were less likely to lead to liability. Once the author became the liable character because there was an effort to censor everything before it was printed, and that became impossible, just as we're learning today about social media. All you could do was after-the-fact liability. Well, in that case, who was liable? The author was, because you knew who wrote it. And so there's an interesting part of this, too. This is where the Senate got around whether AI should be protected by Section 230, became part of the hearing I was in. We won't go to Section 230. That's way too complicated. Just a brief description for all of our non-U.S. listeners. Uh, Section 230 is a piece of U.S. law that enables conversation online because it says that what is said on someone's platform, whether that's the New York Times or whether that's Yahoo or AOL or Facebook, the platform and publisher are not liable for what people say on their platform. That enables conversation to happen. That is a, a shield they are given. But they are also given a sword. They are also told, you are free to moderate that content because it's your platform and you're the publisher and you may do what you want. And so Section 230 was designed to protect public conversation. Right now, politicians and others go after it because they say that it enables tech companies to escape responsibility and we can't sue them. So the Senate says, AI companies should be sued for everything that their models do. Well, this is a whole different discussion about where liability lies. If it lies at the model level, then there's this absurd thing where it's like trying to go back and sue Gutenberg for everything that's ever been printed. Because if you make a model, you cannot possibly predict or restrict what is going to be done with it. So when I went to the WEF event in San Francisco, there was an argument that liability should lie at the application level. If Microsoft puts up ChatGPT 
on Bing and doesn't make clear that it doesn't do facts, and you're the poor lawyer who comes along and asks it for case citations, I covered his case in federal court, by the way, then maybe Microsoft should be liable for misleading you. Or maybe the lawyer who did this is liable because he screwed up, he didn't look it up, he should have known better. Where does that liability exist? Well, that becomes an interesting question in terms of, of deciding who's in charge, who's responsible, where is the creation occurring? That then ends up with things like labor, where what rights someone has in this string of creation still needs a lot of negotiation and thinking through. That was the first part of my conversation with Jeff Jarvis, the author of The Gutenberg Parenthesis, The Age of Print and Its Lessons for the Age of the Internet, and co-host of the podcast This Week in Google and AI Inside. Tune into our next episode to hear Jeff's thoughts on how the news industry's business model must adapt in the age of generative AI. Stay updated with the Newsroom Robots podcast and sign up for our newsletter at newsroomrobots.com. This podcast is made possible thanks to the Harvard Innovation Lab's Spark Grant. I'm Nikita Roy, and this is Newsroom Robots. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.